Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 89, recorded on October 9th, 2020. Azure gives the Cloud Pod an advisor score of 100. Good evening, Peter and Ryan. How's it going? Hey, going well. Same here. Hanging in there. Yeah, you guys, uh, you guys held it down. While I was out on vacation. I saw that. I saw you tweeting. I saw people interacting. I was, I was shocked. So apparently, you're being trained well. <laughs> we, you know, we've, you know, been whipped into shape ever so slowly. Ever, ever so slowly. Uh, unfortunately, Jonathan's not joining us tonight. He has a uh, migraine, so he's gonna sleep that off. Uh, wish him the best. The real reason is he hasn't been whipped into shape, so you know he's in the corner. <sighs> you know he's he's busy editing podcasts, so. <laughs> Let him, let him do that. Uh, well, we have uh, some good news this week uh, while I was out on vacation and now back. Uh, so we will get into this. Uh, the first one up is IBM. Uh, IBM is going to break up their 109-year-old company to focus on cloud growth. Uh, this is the, the basically they're having two public companies capping a year-long effort by IBM to diversify away from its legacy businesses to focus on high-margin cloud computing businesses. Uh, so basically, IBM will take its IT infrastructure service unit uh, which is basically what everyone knows IBM as, is their outsourcing professional service consulting business, uh, which does work for 4,600 clients. And it's a $60 billion backlog of, uh, reg- of revenue to uh, be achieved uh, as a separate NUCO uh, by the end of 2021. Uh, the new business will have about 90,000 employees of IBM's 370,000 some odd employees, which is just massive. Uh, and then the new, then IBM will retain the IBM brand for the cloud business. Chief Executive Officer Arvind Krishna says, we divested networking back in the 90s. We divested PCs back in the 2000s. We divested semiconductors about five years ago because all of them didn't necessarily play into the integral value proposition. And so that is their story. They're going to go all in on the cloud. I mean, I I understand their divestiture strategy, and I, I kind of got it before because they were just divesting things that were kind of on the decline. But, you know, $60 billion backlog in professional services, and IBM is known as the outsourcing company. I, I'm not sure that I wouldn't have kept IBM as the brand for the legacy business and come up with a new brand for the cloud business, I think that would have given them a fresher start. But that's just me. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think, you know, you didn't mention that that last quote where it's uh, IBM is essentially getting rid of a shrinking low margin operation given the cannibalizing impact of automation and cloud. But if you look at the ITO business, I think the ITO business is completely like the decision. ITO, outsource versus insource is completely different than cloud versus data center. And if you look at what uh, Microsoft did, which I think was brilliant in that they really kickstarted Azure by integrating Azure services with the software uh, enterprise licenses, um, I think IBM is missing the boat here. I mean, if, they're, if their cloud technology is that great, then they should be using it to be able to charge less for their ITO deals and get higher margins instead of lower margins. So, I mean, if they can't do better with their cloud business, who can? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, why not take advantage of your cloud that you're building for your customers that you're, uh, you're basically outsourcing your business to? So, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't quite understand this one. Again, I, I think if you're going to divest them, then I think you, you come up with a better brand for the cloud business to make it sound like it's something new and exciting, which it isn't. I mean, that's exactly was my point was, or my first thought, which was, you know, why would you keep the IBM on this side? Are, are you thinking the brand recognition is going to bring in a customer base? Because I don't think that's going to work out. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. I mean, I, everyone knows IBM Cloud is basically soft layer and they basically have destroyed it as much as they could. You know, they bought Red Hat and they, we haven't seen what they're going to do with Red Hat yet. So maybe they have some super amazing Red Hat magic they're about to drop on the world. But you know, right now the Red Hat Play is an operating system in OpenShift. So, again, I'm I'm just not sure I I fully buy into the strategy. But, you know, he's he's the CEO of a very large company with a lot of revenue, and I assume he knows what he's doing. So we're gonna we're gonna keep an eye on this one. I think here at the Clapod, uh, Google has an update on their control of Knative. Uh, Google and its partners on Knative, a key cloud open source project controlled by Google, have announced sweeping changes to the project's governance structure. Knative will implement a steering committee structure in which no single vendor can hold more than two seats on the five-person committee. 
Uh, individuals now hold seats versus vendors, and elections will be held later this year to select two new members or two, yeah, sorry, new members. Uh, this isn't quite as far moving as this to the Cloud Native Community Computing Foundation, which they originally did. Uh, but this is seen as a one way for vendors to not hold all control of the community and will eliminate many of the concerns from other cloud providers who maybe didn't want to contribute to Knative. Uh, so glad to see this maybe is getting closer to resolution. And maybe when they get these new board members on board, they can actually do the right thing and move it to Cloud Native Foundation. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. That'd be great. The first vote is <laughs> yeah. CSEF. I wonder if they'll end up ceding more control by not moving it to the Cloud Native Foundation, just you know, by trying to appease the the communities at large, moving into this dedicated foundation and then diversifying the board. Like they probably could have just moved this and re remained much more in control, being much more influential than they are now. So it's an interesting move. Well, we uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about Progress uh, purchasing Chef uh, after you know for two hundred twenty million dollars. Uh, you know, and they basically indicated at the time that everything was going to be hunky-dory at Chef and everything was going to continue down the path, and they're super excited about integrating Chef into their pipelines. Uh, and then, of course, this week they announced layoffs. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you expect layoffs in any type of acquisition, but the one that was interesting to me was that those cuts included a lot of employees in their Seattle office, which is their headquarters, uh, as well as including portions of their engineering team and their DevRel uh, team I saw on Twitter. Uh, so that's uh, pretty interesting to me. I don't think that's necessarily a commitment uh, to the roadmap, but apparently their progress CEO, Yogesh Gupta, says it is a commitment to the roadmap, and there's tremendous potential moving forward. Yeah, I'm not so sure. But uh, So 270 people were employed at the time of the acquisition. You assume that a lot of those were in sales, marketing, and, and redundant services, but then you know, taking out your engineering team when you're, you're buying a product company it doesn't seem like a good play. No, I mean, it's already, you know, the feedback you're seeing on Twitter, like, it's already ruining their their image. You know, it's people. People are turning off from it. People are definitely having issues. They're trying to figure out how to you know adopt other technologies because it just doesn't leave a good taste in the mouth when you you start cutting those, especially the things that Chef is like known for with it, which is their you know developer relations and their events and their community side of things. So it's a bold move that I'm not sure is a good one for them. Open source is all about the community, and so if you're a company building a product type of open source, I almost wonder if this is the end of the open source chef era, and you know, do we start seeing progress or making this more and more enterprise focused and less and less open source, which I think is a detriment to the company and to what they tried to do. So it'd be interesting to see what happens. Uh, but you know, I think Chef had already kind of. I think the reason why this acquisition was so small. And why they're they're already in the doghouse was because of all of the stuff that happened, you know, last year around DHS and you know their comp their employees revolting and their former employee going in and changing, you know, basically removing his code from the repo and then them copying it. So they they damaged their reputation last year. This layoff now killing their DevRel people, killing the people who really have the community around it. I think is going to be the final blow for Chef uh, in a big way. And I, we probably will stop start to stop talking about Chef more and more and more about Ansible and and other services as we see them continue to evolve and get better. And if you just look at their recurring revenue that they had prior to this purchase, this purchase price was super low. It was like two x. Yeah, of recurring software revenue, like it was ridiculously low. And so then the question is, well, you know, what's on the balance sheet? What's that? You know, what's the monthly burn look like? And what's on the balance sheet? And I bet. There's a lot of stuff in there that doesn't look so great, and progress has to probably make some tough decisions to to make it what they envisioned when they decided to buy it. Yeah, well, it's their, progress is a publicly traded company, so they have to, you know, you have to basically show that this acquisition was a good for growth, and so you need to cut expenses to show top line growth. So, tough, tough world out there in the chef community, and I hope uh, those people land out in good jobs. And if you have a job available, definitely uh, go out there as a hashtag. Uh, that has been trending for Chef. Uh, I don't remember what it is off my head. Chef but, oh, friends. Chef Friends. Chef Friends, yes. Uh, if you have a job or looking for a chef expert, uh, there might be some available to you right now, especially in the Seattle area as well as across the country as they are a remote workforce as well. All right, we'll move on to more happy news. <laughs> off to AWS land. Uh, the first up is Amazon S3 is now available on Outposts. Uh, this is now generally available to allows you to basically run and deploy S3 in your local data center. Uh, this might be important for local data processing needs, data privacy, data residency issues, um, or if you have an application that has demanding performance requirements, you need to keep that data very, very close to your on-premise application uh, until you get it moved to the cloud. 
Uh, it supports all the standard S3 APIs and features. Uh, and S3 on Outpost makes it easy to store, secure, tag, retrieve, report on, and control access to the data on your Outpost. Uh, you can add 48 terabytes or 96 terabytes of S3 storage capacity to your Outpost and create up to 100 buckets on each Outpost. And the one big question I had was, can I use this to actually move my data from the on-prem world to the cloud? And yeah. the answer was yes. They support AWS Data Sync, uh, which is supported for this. So you can automate data transfer between your Outposts and AWS regions choosing what to transfer, when to transfer, and how much network bandwidth to use. So that's a, that's a pretty awesome use case uh, and a great way to get onto the cloud. And if only this had existed a year ago, <laughs> I could have used it in a project. <laughs> yeah, because it's tough, right? It's tough to make the changes to your app, well, the app before you migrate the app, if you want to use leverage object storage when you end up in the cloud, and this is the perfect bridge. Yeah. I'm hoping they come out with maybe just an S3-only version of Outpost, too, because I think that would be a really compelling offering. Uh, you know, without these limitations on 40 and 96 uh, terabytes, which isn't massive. Uh, for some use cases, that's probably plenty, but for many, it's not anywhere close to enough. But yeah, you can also yeah. leverage snowballs and, and those type of things, too, for this use case. Cloud computing has changed the way we live, do business, and stay connected. With everyone using the same cloud platforms, winning and losing comes down to having the best talent to build products better and faster. So whether you're an aspiring innovator looking to level up or a business harnessing the transformative power of the cloud, tech skills and the cloud certifications have never been more important. Cloud Academy has thousands of video courses, learning paths, practical hands-on labs in real-world cloud environments, and tools designed to help teams assess, build, and validate critical cloud skills. Most importantly, Cloud Academy stays agile, challenging you with new content, labs, and tons of features that ensure your skills stay relevant and everyone can level up. They cover everything from major certifications to DevOps, security, and programming languages. Cloud Academy is a cloud training platform of choice for Fortune 500 companies and thousands of tech professionals around the world. Don't just take their word for it. Check out their reviews on G2 and get started now at cloudacademy.com. For a limited time, our listeners can lock in 50% off the monthly price for life. Just put in the coupon code CloudPod when checking out. It's a great way to pursue certifications or just cloud build expertise during this crazy time. Again, Go to cloudacademy.com and use the coupon code CloudPod to lock in 50% off the monthly price. So you can now uh, author AWS Systems Manager automation runbooks using Visual Studio Code. Uh, this is sort of an update to the AWS Toolkit we talked about previously here on the show. Uh, you can add the AWS Toolkit through the VS Code extension. Uh, but using the editor, you can author runbooks to make it faster and more predictive by starting with pre-built templates, auto-completing code with snippets, and validating the runbook for syntax errors in real time. And because the automation runbook uh, code is a little bit wonky, uh, having the snippets is going to be really helpful to you or being able to take those templates. A nice thing, you can edit them right there in the console or either in Visual Studio Code and then publish them right up to your Amazon account if you have the proper permissions to do so. Um, or if you're Ryan and I, you have a GitHub workflow that basically pushes them for you. Uh, because we don't we don't push to prod that way, but many people do. <laughs> but I mean, this is you know it's it's reducing context shift. It's you know it's keeping it all in one place, um, which I'm starting to appreciate more and more. It used to not bother me as much switching context, but now, especially you know development, I get I get little enough time to do it these days for my day job, and when I can sit there and focus and, and be in one place, I can I really capitalize on that context. So this is, you know, I like this and, you know, maybe it's not how you get to prod, you know, maybe it's, you know, how you, you move to, to dev and you test it through and then you know, there's a promotion process, but, you know, great. It's all in one place. I love it. I just, I'm bummed. I don't get to write my systems manager automation run books in VI anymore. <laughs> I did find a uh, a Vim extension for Visual Studio Code. So you can use your Vim ah. commands in Visual Studio Code if you want to go nice. to that level. I I, I didn't. I wasn't inclined to uh, purchase that or to uh, not to purchase it, but to add it to my extensions. But I did see it this morning, and I was like, "Oh, interesting." So. For those who like punishment, yeah. <laughs> for those who those really love their Vim commands, yeah. I want to use a visual editor. Though this is the solution for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little weird, but you know, some people are into it. Well. Uh, Amazon, you know, has been very busy making ElastiCache for Redis uh, much more powerful this year. They announced global data store for Redis. Uh, they embedded CloudWatch metrics, uh, you know, to give you default graphs on your Redis capabilities, as well as support for resource level permissions. And now today, they've announced uh, Redis six compatibility for ElastiCache, uh, which brings you several additional enhancements, including role-based access control. Thank you goodness, <laughs> which provides <laughs> you the ability to manage or create users and user groups for Redis commands. 
allowing you to simplify your architecture while maintaining security boundaries by having several apps use the same Redis cluster, which saves you money, without being able to access each other's data, which is super great. Uh, this is a big challenge if you've been using Elastic Caching history is that you could never share uh, the cluster with multiple things. So you end up spending a lot of money on multiple clusters uh, for different use cases, which was really a bummer. So glad to see this. Uh, the next one up is a client-side caching feature. Uh, this is a server-side enhancement to deliver more efficient client-side caching to further improve your app performance. Redis supports client-side caching by tracking client requests and sending invalidation messages for data stored on the client. Uh, you can also take advantage of the broadcast mode for clients to subscribe to a set of notifications from the REST cluster directly. So uh, if you're using a distributed cache and a local caching mechanism, this is a really great option for you. And then uh, significant operational improvements is the third feature, uh, which includes several enhancements to improve app availability and reliability. Specifically, Elastic Cache has improved replication under low memory conditions, especially for workloads with medium and large size keys, by reducing latency and the time it takes to perform those snapshots. Uh, one of the things they did want to mention here is that if you are familiar with Redis uh, open source, uh, you were not able to do encryption in transit uh, up until Redis 6. Uh, but if you're using Elastic Cache, you had uh, TLS support since Redis 4.0.10. Uh, and if you are going to upgrade from 4.0.10 to Redis 6, uh, there will be no impact to you if you're using that SSL encryption for your traffic, uh, which is really great. This is available to all regions that support Elastic Cache, uh, which I believe is all regions. Uh, but uh, there you go. If you have Elastic Cache in your region, you now have access to Redis 6. So that's pretty awesome. It's all grown up. I've looked at this in the past, and I've always used it for little projects here and there. But you know, some of these enhancements are really making it to where you could use it on a large, well-established project and replace key components of your architecture. Yep, I'd love to see it. You know, do a little bit more with distributed caching. You know, distributed locks and distributed cache for Hazelcast use cases. That's one of the things Hazelcast is a bit better with uh, than Redis. But you know, for a pure caching layer uh, or for you know key value store and memory, it's fantastic. I've Many, many companies I've worked at have had Redis uh, with great success. So I'm definitely a big fan of the Elasticache Redis service. Uh, so Amazon SageMaker continues to lead the way in machine learning and announces an 18% lower price on GPU. Uh, so this blog post, if you click into link, is uh, has several case studies from several customers, including AstraZeneca, Intuit, Lyft, and many more. Uh, and to thank all the amazing SageMaker customers, Amazon is giving you that great price reduction, a significant price reduction to ML.P2 and ML.P3 GPU instances, which represents anywhere from 11% to 18% discount, depending on the instance size. Uh, and the author of the blog post has also published a new book called Learn Amazon SageMaker, which is a 500-page detailed tour of all SageMaker features, illustrated by more than 60 original Jupyter notebooks, all for the low price of $25.99. But uh, <laughs> you can pay for that $25.99 with that savings of 11 to 18%, so works yeah. out for you. Just a bit. Like, that's a huge price cut. That's great. Yeah, that's a, especially for GPU instances, which are some of the most expensive out there. So mm -hmm. super nice to see. Yeah, it felt like we've been getting less and less announcements of lower prices. So it's nice to get another, uh, like a substantial one. I think, you know, it's been interesting. Uh, there's a couple others we didn't talk about today, you know, in, in services. Like I saw another Amazon Connect cost reduction this week, and I saw one other minor cost reduction in Europe somewhere. But uh, it does seem to have increased uh, since Gartner kind of called them out <laughs> <laughs> on the fact that they said that, you know, yes, they have price increases, but they're not price increases for the services you use. Uh, SageMaker and GPU instances, that's a, that's a service people do use. So I yeah. think that's a, that's a great one. Uh, for those of you who have used S3, um, or if you're new to S3, you might have run into a problem, uh, which is around object ownership. So there's a little little thing that happens, basically, if you have Amazon publish data to your S3 buckets, they technically own the data, uh, the way it gets entered into the bucket. And so this causes some confusion for you, uh, particularly when you want to share the data in the object to other accounts. Uh, and so to solve this problem, Amazon has now released a new feature called object ownership, uh, and so this allows you to maintain ownership of these objects, making other functions of the bucket owner unavailable. Uh, so basically, you can fix this on a per-bucket setting. So as you apply the document, you can basically say this is bucket owner full controlled. And now that object is owned by the bucket owner itself. Uh, this doesn't fix existing objects. So you still have to go through some of the hacks, uh, which include typically a Lambda-powered self-copy, which was super annoying because uh, you had to pay for that, in both the ingest and output of that to Lambda. Uh, and CloudFormation support for this feature is coming very, very soon. Uh, so that's a pretty great one. And then, because it gave you a bucket owner condition, they now allow you to also use that as a validation point. So one of the security concerns that you may run into is that if you attacker gets into your bucket or into your Amazon account and can delete a bucket, they can delete your perfectly valid bucket, go to their account, and create a new bucket, and then have all your data written to their account, which is a bit of a problem if it's PII data. 
Uh, so now you can use with the bucket owner condition, you can pass a numeric Amazon account ID to the S3 bucket API or to the HTTP header. And if it does not match, you can get a 403 back uh, for those type of errors, which is a nice little security improvement. I really like this one. Uh, super simple implementation, super simple idea, uh, but tr you know, really solves kind of one of those use cases that's kind of a, a bit scary when you really think about the implications of it. And then the, uh, the third option, or new, third new feature for S3 is you can copy uh, API to the access points uh, by updating the endpoint to the ARN of the access point, uh, you, which gives you much more fine-grained controls and a simple bucket policy, uh, which can get quite unwieldy if you're doing multi-account and a bunch of things. And so access points make this much, much simpler to deal with. And so being able to support the copy API opens up a lot of use cases for uh, S3. So those are your three new features for S3. What do you guys think? I mean, I, how many times have I been bitten by the you know, the lack of the, the bucket owner for control, you know, statement. And then to have the user experience be, well, you set that as part of the condition for permissions so that you don't end up not owning the buckets or not being able to uh, access the objects in the bucket. And so, you know, whoever's writing those objects is just getting, you know, 403s. It's, it, you know, it's a terrible uh, user experience. So this is a great thing if you can set the object ownership directly at the bucket level. I don't know. I haven't played around with it, so I don't know if it's actually changing the ownership or if it's just ensuring that everything written has the correct ownership. Either way, this is a big improvement over the old way of doing things. Yeah. So it is part of the put request. Um, you specify the ACL. It's basically implemented as an ACL. So you basically say, you know, as part of this put object, I'm selecting the ACL bucket owner full control. Um, and that's how it's typically done here in this solution. So it is it is a bit of the whoever does the putting has to add that extra step to their process. But I assume Amazon will support that out of the box for all of their objects that go to S3. And then for your you know, your code, adding a simple uh, ACL command is, should be pretty simple. So I don't think it would be a big deal. So how, how different is that from the – because the previous ACL was, you know, bu you know a bucket under full control on the objects. Is this just changing the name? Uh, well, that's for the put request. Oh, sorry, that's how, actually, that's the way you used to do it. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the way you used to do it. Was that it? Yeah. So this is I. So the way I read this is it's actually setting on the bucket side. Yeah, it's actually on the bucket side. Sorry, that was my misinterpretation as I read through this. Yeah, so that's great. So it's on the bucket, which is really great. And so now you don't have to worry about setting it, which is super nice. Especially when it's, it's super annoying when you had an object in your bucket you couldn't delete because you didn't own it. That was super un, super unfortunate. I, I, I could be wrong, but I feel like we ran into this issue. The first time we ran into it was when we were involved in the pre-release um, partner beta period for CloudTrail. Oh, uh, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. It would totally make sense. <laughs> that would be the first yeah, one you'd yeah. write to that. Because you're going to write that to a bucket in, the, in an account that's different, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It, this just reminds me how young this industry is. Because these features are super awesome, but... Well, it's, it's one of those things as a Windows, former Windows admin in my past lives. Uh, you know, <laughs> inheritance is a big thing in Windows permissions scape. So, you know, you set the folder permissions and you accept inheritance yeah. and then everything happens and yeah. you get to object storage and you're like, it's like a file directory, but it's not because it doesn't yeah. actually maintain any of those permissions that you set at the bucket or folder level uh, onto the objects. So that's uh, it's nice to definitely see that get fixed. Uh, I think that caused a lot of confusion for people as they first started to get into this space. All right. Well, moving on to the next one. Um, so if you have multiple accounts, one of the things that you typically like to do is have IAM roles among these accounts that are supposed to be similar. Uh, so things like a dev production push account for Jenkins, for example. You might have that in your dev account, but you want the permissions to match that in your production account. Uh, so to basically compare them, you have to you know, basically go to both accounts. You have to do a bunch of manual copy-pasting into a differ, and it'll basically tell you what's different about those things. Uh, but that doesn't really give you anything insights. Like if you're invoking roles or doing all kinds of other weird things, it doesn't actually give you a lot of insights because those may be completely valid but uh, incorrect. So as part of this tool, they have now created IAM CTL tool, which compares multiple IAM roles and policies and gives you a visual readout of what's different between the two policies and how they're invoked across two accounts. So you can compare them and report out the differences and statistics, and you can take this magic and then write a bit of automation code to actually push out the corrected permission set. I hope this takes in consideration the fact that you could do like, you know, describe star or you can list out individually every describe action of a service, you know, those types of things. Because that's where all my homegrown automation always gets uh, chewed up, you know, is that we start as we exceed the IAM policy limits, we start adding asterisks here and there to, to make it, you know, sort of smaller without granting more privileges. And that's always 
then, you know, and then trying to automate the comparison and make sure that we're not, you know, being overly permissive. It's always just a, a nightmare. Like, not only do you have to load it up into, like, some sort of, you know, language structure and then do the comparisons, individual objects, because sorting JSON and comparing JSON is just not a good idea. Super uh, fun. <laughs> yeah, super fun. Yeah. But, yeah, so this is, if if this works the way they are advertising it, this is going to be a huge win, and then I can't wait to start rolling this out for more automated compliance purposes. Yeah, no, I, as soon as I saw this announcement, I was like, oh, Ryan's going to love this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that nerd's going to eat this up. And I will. <laughs> as, a, as a person who has to promote a lot of roles, I know I know how much of a pain this actually is. And yes. uh, comparing them is a nightmare. So. This is Yeah, this will be me on my soapbox or my sandwich board. We'll see how it works. One of those two. Uh, well, Amazon Compute Optimizer is being enhanced uh, to take into consideration Amazon EBS metrics. Uh, so one of the problems the Compute Optimizer in the past has been it's been very focused on CPU usage. And so you might have a box that has 10% CPU usage, uh, and it's recommending to you that that's an over-provisioned box. But if you look at the EBS IOPS of the box, it's actually pushing through its maximum I.O. or very close to its maximum I.O. for the PIOPS or for the uh, basic EBS throughput. Uh, so that was a bit of a challenge because you couldn't really take the compute optimizer recommendations at face value uh, because that would just mess things up for you. Uh, so now they're taking that into consideration, which is great. So they're now analyzing the EBS metrics so it can generate enhanced EC2 instance type recommendations. Uh, and this is available for both the compute optimizer and the cost explorer right sizing recommendations. Uh, this enhancement will also show you that you're being bottlenecked by EBS bandwidth or IOPS bottleneck. Uh, and also recommend increased EC2 instance types to help you get better performance for your app if you're bottlenecked by both of those two points, which you know has burned me many times where you're like, what is wrong with this box? And then you find out, oh, we're maxing out the yeah. EBS bandwidth. Because you never look there first. It's not a very obvious no. metric. It's, it's the same problem that happens with the T, T2, T3 instances. You never look at the burst credits first. Yeah. Well, I do now. I do now. <laughs> I've been burned I've enough times. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, these these scars. Yeah, this is great. I haven't run into this where I uh, so this is, they're solving a problem before before I've actually ran into it. But there's a number of use cases I can think of where I will probably run into this where optimizers telling me I'm doing everything wrong. Yeah. I mean, we've often gone straight to QDEP in EBS as a, as the limiting factor to do like sizing for workloads. I mean, it's definitely possible, but they uh, they have they have. You know insights from the nitro cards too of exactly how much bandwidth you're pushing to EBS and how much you're using your PIOPS. And so they'll be able to tell you. It'd be nice if they even had right sizing recommendations for PIOPS too. That'd be really cool. That would be super cool. Maybe that's a, maybe we can ask for that as a feature request. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As in, you don't need this. Stop. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> AWS Lambda extensions uh, are now available. This is a new way to integrate Lambda with your operational tools. Uh, this is available in preview to you. Uh, today, you can use extensions for following, you know, a bunch of tools, including AppD, Checkpoint, Datadog, Dynatrace, HashiCorp, uh, New Relic, Splunk, all the, all the guys that you all know and love. Uh, AWS AppConfig and AWS CloudWatch Lambda Insights, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, but this native integration and Lambda-ready partners have been the only way to get simple integrations that Lambda has in the past. And so customers wanted to use a non-AWS offering to integrate Lambda with other operational tools. And so extensions are the new way for tools to be more easily integrated deeply into the Lambda. I thought it was a little interesting, though, that the, the, the partner that I expected to be on this list that is missing is Prisma Cloud. Uh, as I was sure that their Lambda security thing, that's their firewall uh, inspector, uh, would show up here in this list, but apparently not. So I don't, I'm not sure they're friends yet with Amazon. Uh, you do pay for these extensions in the same way you pay for any Lambda function, which is through the requests and compute time. So if your your partner takes an additional you know 300 milliseconds to run, you will pay for that every execution time. Uh, you can also deploy these extensions through layers, uh, as well as through the Lambda console, CLI, or infrastructure as code tools like CloudFormation. Yeah, it's true. Now that you mention it, there's not really a whole lot in the way of security as far as the, the original launch partner. So it is all just monitoring based. So it's an interesting uh, uh, find, and I wonder if that's gonna kind of direct the the integrations the way that they're designed. I wonder if it'll preclude certain things you'd look at if you were looking for security versus monitoring and operational things. <laughs> is it hinting at the next Amazon service, AWS? Firewall for Lambda with Prisma Cloud <laughs> compatibility. <laughs> it could be. Uh, well, I, I, what's the, what is the name of that company that uh, they bought that does the, uh, I know, the Lambda? I, I know. It's, like We've both evaluated this, and I'm struggling to find the name. 
Yeah, it's a. Uh, they bought Twistlock for containers, and then they bought. Uh, it was one of those companies that always used to bother me all the time. Mm-hmm. It was pinging me. Uh, let's see. I'm looking at PureSec. That's it. PureSec. There it is. PureSec. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I never really was a big fan of PureSec because I felt like they were uh, taking away one. Of, you know, they were basically taking parts of the shared security model, which I expected Amazon to handle, and telling me that I have to handle it and be concerned about it, which sort of bothered me and. I felt like all of our SAST tools and the security pipeline, you know, for GitHub and you know, they're looking for static code problems and dynamic code problems and and all those things. And I thought that was where that our, our protection should be. I don't need in the runtime. Uh, and then they added the firewall capability, which made it a little bit better. Like, okay, you want to guarantee that only certain things can connect to it, but then Lambda should be supporting that too through security groups or different invocation methods. Um, so I I always struggle with the PureSec story. Um, so it is interesting to me though they're they're missing on this list because I was sure as soon as I heard this was coming out I was like oh yeah this is how PureSec's going to get on the good list <laughs> and you know you know but it was always one of those things of like you're paying a lot of money for the security invocation of this tool uh, plus you're paying for the tool uh, however much that would be so yeah I've always been skeptical of that model too because it seems a little bit like a compliance checkbox and fear mongering combined to make a sell strategy you know which is like you don't know how insecure these things are you have no way to scan it it's a black box and you know but is there a real risk there are there you know sure vulnerabilities certain libraries and versions but you know like exploitable risks is a, a different thing from actual having vulnerabilities so it's I was not a big fan yeah well, you know, I mentioned uh, Amazon CloudWatch Lambda Insights. Uh, this is a new feature that's now in preview available as well. Uh, this is the ability to to kind of unlock that black box a little bit that uh, Ryan just mentioned. Uh, this allows you to monitor, troubleshoot, and optimize the performance of your AWS Lambda function. Uh, with this preview, you have access to automated dashboards summarizing the performance and health of your Lambda functions that provide visibility into issues such as memory leaks or performance changes caused by new function versions. Uh, you can use this to understand compute, memory allocation, and function duration changes over time to your function utilization. It also integrates nicely into CloudWatch Log Insights and CloudWatch uh, Service Lens to trace dependencies and logs of your Lambda functions, making it a one single pane of glass for a kind of APM use case, which is pretty nice. So uh, this also is powered by these extensions. So mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah, this is kind of what I wanted X-Ray to do for me, and it never did, right? You know, like, you know, not only provide the tracing through different different functions in different areas for the app, but also display it in a way that makes sense. I remember we talked to the X-Ray GM one time and we were saying, you know, is this going towards an APM or more APM capabilities? And the answer was no. <laughs> you know, very strictly going to stick to tracing. Uh, but it seems like these Insights products are really kind of their answer to APM in a big way. And so I expect at some point they're going to have some major, you know, they'll do an Insights dashboard. <laughs> or insights, there you go. Yeah. You know, that's when you'll know when it's really arrived. Is, yeah. You know, you have a centralized firewall, Insights platform kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Uh, so back in episode 41, we talked about uh, Amazon launching EC2 vCPU-based limits. Uh, these are for your cert, your quotas, basically. So before, you could only launch you know 10 M5 larges, 10 M5 2x larges. And so that was a bit of a problem because um, you, know, you never know what you needed from a compute workload. So you could basically change in 2019 to vCPU-based limits. So you could say, I want 100 vCPUs or 200 vCPUs, which has been a really nice change. Uh, but that didn't go all the way to spot instances. And so now today, they're announcing vCPU-based spot instance limits uh, are now available for EC2 spot, uh, which is pretty great. You can now manage spot limits from the Amazon EC2 console directly, and they service quota console, uh, all available to you. So now you can get those spot instances up to snuff with the same way you do your EC2 normal boxes. I'd love to know what the year of extra work was to make it work for spot. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just learned that it was a separate quota for spot instances versus on demand. Like, I was surprised that hasn't bitten me before. Yeah, I, I, when I wrote these notes up, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, "There's a different limit for spot." I yeah, didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so that was that, just, was a, that was a surprise to me too. I want to see the super interesting architectural quirk on the back end when they said we want this 
VPU based instance limits and the, the guys on the board like, well, we can't do spot. And then he draws this incredible thing. They're like, oh, you're right. We can't. And then like a, <laughs> he's like, put their plan together to make it work. <laughs> I wonder if it's that story or just that there's more, they're trying to do more things with spot that they've been working on. And so they just, this is, they finally got to this on the list. And like, oh yeah, we need to do that thing we did a year ago for EC2. Way more entertaining for me to picture, you know, the, the meme from, you know, always sunny in Philadelphia where it's like the, the board behind him with the yarn driven and, you know, it's kind of the deranged look. Yeah. You know, like yeah. trying to figure out how to make this work for Spot because I would, you know, Spot's a very interesting product and I bet you that there's probably some pretty rough areas behind like to make this work. Yeah, it's very possible there are. Yeah. Or maybe there's some really cool Spot features coming out at reInvent this year that work we can talk about later. So. Such Ooh. an optimist. Such an yeah, optimist. That's, that's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, AWS has made the CloudFormation Guard, uh, which is an open source capability generally available, as an open source tool that helps companies ensure their cloud environments comply with cybersecurity policies and their own internal rules. Uh, CloudFormation Guard ensures that any new resources added to a deployment comply with the InfoSec team's policies or operational policies or whatever policies you have about how you do these things. Uh, the nice thing about this is that it's not fully embedded into any of the Amazon tooling, so there's no way to prevent someone from running these CloudFormations yet. <laughs> But hopefully that'll be the next coming coming up next, uh, which is just relying on your deployment pipeline to catch all these issues. But I am kind of glad to see it. It's nice to have a rules-based engine to avoid things going into your infrastructure that are not uh, up to your standard. Yeah. It's a start, right? You can define a policy. It means you run through these things. Yes, it's not a hard enforcement, but you know, hard enforcement always has exceptions anyway. So you know, these are tools to help keep people safe. And if nothing else, it'll just allow one team to develop a sense of rules um, so that the other team, you know, the customer team doesn't have to think through it as much. All right, moving over to GCP. Uh, they are releasing more tools to simplify the healthcare challenges brought about by the pandemic, particularly around enabling virtual care. And so the first one of these they're launching is the Google Cloud Healthcare Consent Management API to public preview. The API gives healthcare app developers and clinical researchers a simple way to manage individuals' consent of their health data. This is important given the new and emerging virtual care and research scenarios related to COVID-19. Uh, the API makes it easy to satisfy the requirements of existing and emerging, emerging privacy and consent frameworks while supporting the transparent and responsible incorporation of digital health data into patient care and research. And this is HIPAA compliant, uh, which is pretty nice. So, yeah, I'm just, you know, learning these things as you go because it's I haven't worked in healthcare. I know you have, Justin. And so, like, I, I usually go into you and be like, this, is this cool? Like, I don't know if this is cool. <laughs> so it's a bit weird, actually, you know, I, I, it's a function, it's a feature, right? It's not a product. So, you know, consent is a big deal and tracking consent and consent validation. And especially if you think about your Apple, uh, you know, your Apple phone and basically Apple health. And you're saying, I want, you know, my fitness pal to be able to access my, my health data that's in Apple health. So that's, that's basically an API that has to be called. There's a consent agreement that you're basically saying, yes, I approve this data to be go from Apple to uh, my fitness pal. And that's the consent process. So there's, there's definitely a need for the capability to track those consents and who has access to this healthcare data, especially if you're thinking about uh, tracing data for COVID. You know, if you want tracing apps in the future, they need to be able to do these things. This feels something, maybe something that's going to go into the Android framework at some point as well or support Android use cases in a big way. But it, it, to me, it's a feature. <laughs> it's not a solution. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's a little bit interesting to me that they would start here, although this is probably something people desperately need to implement for virtual care. Um, but, you know, to me, it feels like, where's the rest? <laughs> it's, a nice, it's a nice appetizer, but, like, there's a lot more I need in healthcare uh, to make this effective and work well. And I, I just don't see that yet in this announcement. But um, it's good to see them doing something in the space. I just, it feels like the, you know, why didn't, A, why wasn't this covered in Google Cloud Next over the nine weeks? Uh, as part of their healthcare track, <laughs> <laughs> and number two, you know, where's the rest of it? I think I think that's a big question. Well, I think that's the problem when you have an event and it's just too short. It's not enough time for everything. Nine weeks wasn't enough for you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's just not enough time to get this one in there. <laughs> Gotta love the product team. It's like you have nine weeks to finish this, and you still couldn't get it done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure this wasn't something they started, you know, until COVID started. So, you know, it started in March. They, they tried. But, uh, yeah, it's just, again, I, I suspect to see more in this space. And I, I suspect Google Cloud Healthcare will become a big deal. I just as this is the first thing. I'm, it's an interesting foray into the world. Especially knowing that Epic, uh, which is a big healthcare system, doesn't want to use Google Cloud and isn't supporting Google Cloud. It's, again, it's who's, who's the customer for this? And so it, it's been interesting. 
Well, if you are looking uh, to take advantage of server-side HTTP streaming for your serverless applications, uh, you can now do that with Cloud Run. Uh, with this enhanced networking capability, your Cloud Run services can serve larger responses or stream partial responses to clients during the span of a single request, enabling quicker server response times for your applications. Uh, this enables things like sending responses larger than the previous 32 megabit limit, uh, running gRPC services with server streaming RPCs, and sending partial responses to a single request, uh, which support for things like Unary. Uh, Respond with server send, uh, server send events or SSEs, which can you can consume from your front end using the HTML5 event source API. Uh, so this is pretty nice to enable some very nice mobile web applications, I'm sure, uh, out there, and the customers wanted. Yeah, and just more capabilities for you know serverless style app. So great. Yep. Yep. And again, you know, more features for Cloud Run, which is great. But then it brings up the next feature announcement, which is Cloud Functions. Uh, which is a direct competitor to Cloud Run. So Google Cloud Functions, of course, is a scalable pay-as-you-go functions-as-a-service platform, very similar to serverless. Uh, but it's not Cloud Run, folks, because you know who doesn't want multiple options for the same capabilities? Uh, functions are a great fit for service application backends, integrations with third-party services and APIs, or for mobile or IoT backends. And then several updates to Cloud Functions have been completed, including support for runtimes, including .NET, Java, and Ruby, now joining Node.js, Python, and Golang, which have been there for a while. Uh, so Ruby still living strong. Yeah, you know, I love it. <laughs> although now that now that chefs now that chefs on the downward trend, uh, they're kind of the last big Ruby shop out there. Now, what are you talking about? Ruby on Rails. Who's still running Ruby on Rails in production Me. today? Me, uh, <laughs> me, me. Yes, but to be fair, when At did scale? you develop that app? <laughs> yeah. um, who is? That's a good question. <laughs> ha- well, Harvest. I think Harvest is Ruby on Rails. I think, I think there's a bunch. I think you'd be shocked at how many SaaS applications, just the front end, not the back end. I bet there's sure. a lot of uh, a lot of Ruby on Rails out there. I suspect Probably. you're right because I do I, I do hear about it more more than I think I would. But yeah, it's definitely not the favorite choice for most companies though nowadays. It's not starting something, something starting something new. But yeah, anything that started about seven eight years ago, it's a good chance there's Ruby there. Uh, also, Cloud Functions are now available in 11 more regions, bringing the total to 19 regions supporting this capability. Uh, there's an improved local developer experience using the Functions Framework, Docker Files, and Build Packs, uh, which also labels you to turn them into a single function into a complete container image that can be deployed to services like Cloud Run. Hmm. Hmm. I guess. I wow. See Actually, I mean, I, I don't know if that's a new service or something I'm just learning, but it, that's pretty. That's a neat little thing if you can run, you know, you upload a Docker file and it's running as a function. Yeah, so you, there's a function framework that basically came out with a while ago, and then the new build packs, which we talked about in a couple of shows ago, maybe while you're on vacation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Docker file, you kind of combine those three things together, it turns that basically into a, a running container that can run a function as a container, which is pretty nice. Uh, yeah, so so an, easy, an easy path to Cloud Run, which is nice. Well, or the uh, the ability to you know scale into something that's more on demand for compute versus something that's running continuously and costing money. Yep. There's also an improved Cloud Functions UI experience, including a better inline code editor that is suitable for larger screens. You know, they could just integrate a Visual Studio Code. That's what everyone else is doing. That's what everyone else is. <laughs> yeah. uh, security enhances the fine grained controls, costs, and scaling controls, which anybody who has a cost problem with functions, I'd like to talk to you. Ability to set maximum number of instances of the function. So you, you, if you only want to have you know, 500 simultaneous functions running, you can limit that now. Budget alerts, again, because if you have budget problems, I'd like to know about it. And then labels, uh, which is just Google's implementation of tags. So there you go. So good to see functions getting some love. I was starting to think that they weren't going to do anything for it. I thought Cloud Run was the future, and everyone was just going to run to Cloud Run in a, a pretty aggressive way. But uh, apparently not, which is nice. It's almost time for the, the semi-annual explain to Ryan the differences between all the Google services. <laughs> almost. <laughs> almost there. Yeah. Let us know when you're ready. We'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. Give, I'll give it my try. Okay. Uh, you know, two years of doing the show, I've learned a lot about Google Cloud, plus my own <laughs> experimentation. I, I think I can I think I can get through it this time. So we'll see. Uh, well, if you're curious about running, uh, understanding your production performance, uh, you can leverage the Cloud Profiler uh, on Google Cloud. This is one of their many capabilities. It's very similar to an APM or to the Insights product we talked about earlier with Amazon. Uh, and one of the new things they've added to it uh, with this announcement is the ability to uh, see your historical data for Cloud Profiler. Uh, so this is, you know, use this tool to shorten outages, improve performance, and optimize compute spend, or compare, you know, last month's release to this month's release, see how you're performing. And so the profile allows you to see a single function or a group of functions over time, as well as see the historic data of the functions over that same period of time. So you can see those trends, which is pretty nice. 
Hmm. I'm so glad I don't own an APM software tool that I'm trying to sell at 90% gross margins right now. If, if you go back to the, uh, the Avdos Lambda extensions, I mean, one, two, three, four, <laughs> five, six, seven, yeah. eight of them are APM tools. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. It's a, it's a very crowded space. And, you know, and, and some of them, the ones that have been around for a long time, have struggled scaling. Like New Relic just did a major rewrite of their platform uh, because they weren't able to scale it anymore and you know, didn't support Lambdas. And so now they do, which is great. Uh, but they had to do a major rework. So I, APM space is hard. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough business. Yep. Which I think is why you see you know, when new technologies come out like Golang, you see a new company spin up around APM for Golang because by the time AppDynamics or New Relic or any of these other guys get to it, you know, it's going to be two or three years because their roadmaps are so big. And then that product, that company who's basically started on Golang is now expanded to Python and to .NET and to all the things their customers wanted them to do. And so that's how they, I think that's how they kind of proliferate. That's my, right. my, my understanding of the industry because, you know, a lot of the companies I've, I've known in the space, you know, they started out as very niche and they get bigger and bigger as people say, I want a single pane glass. I want to see all my code in one system. And that's how you get there. I'm sort of surprised there's not more, you know, cannibalism in that space too is you know it's like you're if you're you're doing python apm you're like i could develop go apm or i could just buy that guy they don't do a lot of mna which is interesting um traditionally i mean bmc and ca have done mna in this space but not very many have so it's uh, it's been interesting i think it's hard to plug these platforms together too because they all have their very own unique way of they see the world <laughs> and how they want to collect this data you're talking about massively t- ingesting data at scale all big tough problems well, Azure uh, has a bunch of new stuff for us this week, too. Uh, determining how to run cloud workloads that are secure, reliable, performant, and cost-effective can be challenging, especially if you don't understand the workload. But maybe if you want to evaluate it for walk deployments or what action you can take, it will have the biggest impact. Uh, to make this more automated and to allow people who have no idea what the app is uh, to give a better idea, they're now releasing the Azure Advisor Score. Uh, to help you understand how a- your Azure workloads are following best practices, assess how much you stand to gain by remediating the issues, and prioritize the most impactful recommendations. Uh, Advisor Score will help you assess, optimize, and report on this. And the overall score is calculated on a scale from 0 to 100% in aggregate and separately for cost, security, reliability, operational excellence, and performance. Uh, so if you have inherited a brand new Azure account and you don't know where to start, this is a great place, I think, to uh, get a good idea of what's broken in your account and how you're doing against the Azure best practices, which is pretty nice. I could just picture uh, the owner, the owner that you just described being Michael Scott, and just being like, <laughs> "I just want to dial. I I just want to dial. I just want to. I just want to dial. I just want to see if it's good or bad. I don't know what it means. Give me a dial. Uh, I'm, I'm sure if they, you know, judge the cloud pod to be a hundred on that dial. It's, well, they already have, and it is a hundred. Yeah, I mean, exactly. how do you get better than this as far as best? Why practice? wouldn't it be? Yeah. Right? I mean, we're giving best practices every day here at the mm-hmm. Cloud yeah. That's what we do. Well, at uh, Microsoft Ignite, uh, there were several announcements in the GitHub and Azure DevOps space, enabling new capabilities, that, ha- and they have now written a blog post to tell us more about them. So here you go. Uh, there are new actions for Azure, uh, particularly for in GitHub, which are pretty interesting. The first one is a manage Azure policy as code in GitHub feature. Uh, so this is uh, for those people who started out as Windows admins who point and clicked all the way through managing policies and created you know a couple hundred policies and then said, I really should get on this infrastructure as code bandwagon with Terraform or you know maybe Gitflow or something, uh, or I you know I hired twelve more uh, people who needed big modifications to these and were stepping on each other. They might need a way to import those into a GitHub repo, uh, and this particular action does that for you. So take all of your existing manually created policies, import them into uh, GitHub, and then give you a single way to as you do push commits or, or, or accept pull requests to basically push those changes back into your accounts uh, all seamlessly through GitHub Actions. So pretty nice. Uh, pretty cool little way to kind of get you started if you started out in a very manual infrastructure method because uh, you had not drinking the coli like the rest of us here at the Cloud Pod have. Uh, if you had not done that and you're now trying to get there, this is a great way to get there uh, if you're using GitHub. So jealous of the people that are starting out today with the, you know, because it's, you know, like everyone makes that transition from, you know, doing manual actions to doing more automated one. It's just, you know, the yeah, there's a argument for being a late adopter. <laughs> there's yeah. a lot more options. So much easier now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, you can now deploy ARM uh, via infrastructure's code, and this is not the ARM and the type that Jonathan likes. Uh, this is the deploy Azure resource manager templates actions. Uh, with this action, you can automate your workflow to deploy ARM templates and manage Azure resources. Uh, so this is basically like CloudFormation or Terraform, but in a pipeline. <laughs> so pretty nice, uh, all powered by GitHub Actions once again. Uh, this will deploy ARM templates at any deployment scope, resource scope, subscription, or management group scope. Uh, so if you'd like to set them at a global level for your subscription, you can do that or at an individual deployment scope, which is pretty great. Uh, you can build Azure VM images from immutable infrastructure using uh, you know, basically defining your VM as code. Pretty straightforward. Uh, you can trace your Kubernetes changes from Azure portal to GitHub commits. Uh, so basically the deploy Kubernetes cluster action has been updated to enable changelog view in Azure portal. And so if something happened to your cluster, you can go see the change log and tie it directly back to the commit that was made in your GitHub workflow that broke your cluster. So now you can blame Ryan <laughs> more effectively. Yeah. We all know it was me, but sometimes I'm pretty good at covering my tracks. Yep. And then uh, they also now have the ability to automatically scan your container images as part of your pull request workflow, uh, which is great for anybody doing containers and integrating that into your CI/CD pipeline is a must-do for all of your container use cases. Interesting. I want, does it, it? I guess it takes the Docker file because this is part of the pull request. So it takes the pull request and builds the image to scan it. Yep. Cool. Yep. And that way you can have it as part of your. You know, if you want to have that as a gate to being mm -hmm. able to accept that pull request, you can make sure it passes that check first. Which that's is fantastic. Uh, we missed out on this announcement from Ignite as well. This is uh, Azure Machine Learning helping customers stay ahead of challenges. This is a very long article uh, that I summarized down to really one thing, which is really important, is that they announced apparently Azure Machine Learning Designer, uh, which provides a drag-and-drop canvas to build no-code models with ease. Uh, this is sort of their answer to SageMaker. Uh, the built-in modules help pre-process data and build and train models using machine learning and deep learning algorithms, including computer vision, text analytics, and recommendations, anomaly detection, and much, much more. Uh, so if you're struggling with the Azure machine learning capabilities, do check out the new Azure machine learning designer, which I wanted to mention here. Um, as I read through the article, I realized we missed this during Ignite. So check that one out. Ooh. Or just yeah. learn to write the code. Well, I mean, no code is the future, right? Not for me. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> No code does provide the ability to run like tests and, and R&D and little POCs without a huge investment up front, which I do like. Um, and so machine learning is one of those areas where, especially since I'm a machine learning noob, like this is, you know, I don't have to learn the full ins and outs. I can sort of drag and drop and sort of experiment to learn. So I like that. Yeah, I just remember even even no code, even if you don't, even if you want to learn the code, I guess there's sort of that macro benefit of um like getting the basics in place just it's shorter to do this than to write all the code and then flip to the code view and then make the code what you want it to be that's what i used to do like with microsoft access right you create all your joins create kind of what you want and then switch to sql view and then and then get it right it, it's uh, as I'm watching my son learn coding, I'm realizing the no code aspects of how they teach coding to small children. And so it's like it's very interesting because it's all visual. It's all these things, but they're teaching concepts of loops and returns. And yeah. Things. And so it's like it, it, it yeah, I'm that's the hard part. around a little bit. Right. Like it's, it's but that's not the language. hard part. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's learning the language isn't the hard part. I think the hard part is actually understanding how to create the, the workflows and the business logic. And you have to do that either way. Mm hmm. It's funny, I saw uh, there's a webcomic commit strip. I don't know if you guys follow this one or not. Uh, but you know, basically, it's a, it's a dev shop and they, you know, comic. But the, basically, the, the joke in this particular comic I just posted into the, into the show notes here is uh, that the product manager is basically using a no code solution <laughs> and he, he's, he's super excited because it's all working. And then he realizes that, uh, you know, he can't, his entire project is basically worthless because the one feature he needs isn't then the core product. And now he has to go out to all of his dev team to make them rebuild the whole thing anyways, which is pretty, pretty humorous <laughs> to me. Exactly. <laughs> that exactly. is pretty much how it goes down. Yeah. yeah so I, I included that comic in the, in the show notes for all of our listeners as I thought awesome. pretty, pretty great. So, uh, but uh, yeah, it was, it was just funny that I saw that this week and I was, I was chuckling about that. It's so, so true. All right, Peter, take us to lightning round. Amazon text tracked supports customer S3 buckets. Making it so much easier for your hackers to identify if your buckets have worthwhile data much faster. Mm, nice, yeah. I mean, it would make it easier, except for Textrack's still not really all that great at recognizing special characters or case-sensitive things. So. 
Amazon SageMaker processing now supports built-in Spark containers for big data processing. I think you misread that. I think it's Amazon SageMaker processing now supports built-in money hose for big data processing. (laughs) (laughs) Was that hose like H-O-S-E? Yes. Maybe. Okay. (laughs) Well, I clarify that point. Funny either way. I think I just won. Okay. Um, Amazon MSK adds support for Apache Kafka version 2.5.1. Continuing Amazon's trend of never being up to date as 2.6 is the latest version. Uh, Speaking of Amazon MSK, you can now automatically expand cluster storage. You know, a managed service that doesn't run out of disk space seems really novel. I, I I mean, thank you. Thank you for what I expect you to do out of the box already. Why do I have to tell you to expand my storage? Just do it. Well, because you know you you need that checkbox to like spend all my money, which is what they should call this feature. But oh, nice! Yes. So now we'll now we're gonna accidentally slip some code snippets in examples that have loops that create files accidentally. AWS Code Pipeline now supports Git clone for source actions and GitHub Enterprise Server. Sweet Jesus. They've been waiting to get this to GitHub Enterprise support for years. I think my first PFR for CodePipeline was support GitHub Enterprise. Oh, so grateful. So grateful. To be fair, there's a team of code commit product designers that are now just crying in their, in their I guess, work, work office, home offices now. Yeah, that, you got to support them all. You got to make code commit uh, compete with GitHub as AWS, right? Amazon Work Docs now supports dark mode on iOS. Perfect. I can now support my mood dark when using Work Docs. Well, and you know, you don't have to, you know, it's a, it's a cool it's how you identify the cool developers, right? The ones that are using dark mode. Now you can use Work Docs and be cool. Cool. Azure Repos adds a default branch at the org level. And the first thing I did was check to make sure it wasn't master. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fact it's main so there you go straight to jail good for them yeah as your data lake storage static website is now in preview which is one of those features where you say do i really want a static website on my data lake data which is pii potentially and then can i also point that text track feature there Mm, hacking opportunities. It's interesting because I read this as yeah, Azure Blob Store, and so I read this all wrong. Now, now I realize that it's not what I thought it was at all. Yeah. So if you want, it's a really simple. <laughs> okay. First, other point, and this is, if your data lake use case is so simple that you can <laughs> use a single st- web static website, yeah. I'm not sure a data lake is the right yeah. option for you. It's kind of a data puddle. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny because it's it's also kind of implying that. We called we we changed the name from object store to data lake, but really it's just an object store. Amazon EFS integrates with AWS Systems Manager to simplify management of Amazon EFS clients. I was super excited about this, and I was like, oh, thank goodness, they finally made it so Systems Manager can mount your EFS volumes automatically, and you know I don't have to do all that coding work in cloud init anymore. No, that's not what it does. No. It just updates the cloud, the Amazon EFS client, which makes it easier to do the cloud init process and to do all of your FS tab modifications. But this is just supporting the client, which they could have just made EFS client self-update itself. But nope, nope. We're going to make SSM do it. because that's. I'm still confused. Why do we need a client? We're FS tab, it's a file. Uh, so the client basically simplifies all of – so instead of putting in the whole really long URL, the client basically you just put in the, the EFS ID, and then it handles also all of the ES, EFS ID permission stuff because you remember they added all the ACL logic and all of the RBAC tied to IAM groups. So that client does all of that magic. And then you need all the libraries for if you want to do encrypted connections and all that crap. But I was really hoping – I mean, I was – hoping that it would do the EFS setup and all that and mount them automatically for me. But then I also realized that systems manager is kind of really late in the process. So I don't know if I want to wait for it to do that in an auto-scaling event. So it's not really the use case I wanted anyways, but I dreamed for a moment. Yeah. If you think about the way system manager can run, like system manager, you know, it's, you know, running at a knit start, but, you know, it's also like if you had a way to, an eventual consistency model, make sure your machines all looked right. Like I don't think you can do prioritized document provisioning on SSM, can you? 
I don't think you can do prioritized, but eventually so you need you need to be able to do prioritize because if my first step is mount the EFS to then you know attack, access my web access, my web layer files or web files, I would need that first. So it Add depends on. See, you just say, oh, it doesn't exist. I'll try again. Yeah. Okay, so AWS Deep Racer announces new community races updates. I was always wondering how they were going to figure out how to deal with with COVID and their their community races. And so now. Now we're just all going to do machine learning and video games, and it's going to be another virtual construct that I'm going to be terrible at. All I could think of was a simpler time when I used to worry about a little remote car with a camera and how I could program it for machine learning, and then COVID happened. I still can't wait. I, I want them to program a go-kart, and they have to program it to beat me. That's what I want. Ooh. A race head-to-head with the machine. So are you, are you saying that you're a world-class go-kart race person like you you this is not world class but not world class but good enough to beat anybody's deep racer that's what i'm challenging <laughs> well I, so I'm, I'm more questioning why there has not been a foghorn event and reinvent for go Ooh. to the racetrack and mm-hmm. challenge peter yeah so, okay that'll be it free hours free consulting hours if you could beat peter so the, i've been terrible at training machine learning models but i'd be pretty freaking decent about scaling up the control mechanism of a deep racer into go-kart Nice. So, you know, they're all electric now, too. So, like, the fast ones are electric. Like, yeah, so. Oh, that would be much easier then. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I'm on board. Take all right. The last but not least, there's a new Datadog integration with Azure that offers seamless configuration experience. Now answering the, le- the age-old question, who let the dogs out? It's Azure. Oh. So cheap. Such oh. a cheap win. Yeah. Such a cheap victory. <laughs> And you know, oh, yeah. I saved it for the very end when I did the show notes. I was like, no, this is going yeah. to end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great job, guys. Yeah. So what, what is that? Is that me? Do I get yeah, it? Oh, yeah. Okay. You had it with the you hose anyway. It was you. Yeah, yeah you had it with the hose anyway, but that, that was just. I the, really just wanted, I just wanted Peter to say it. That was, I just wanted him to say it. <laughs> Let the dogs out. Woof, woof. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, it's been a fantastic week here in the cloud. We have a ton of news for next week. We're recording on Friday. I already know part of the news for next week. So uh, back to the show note grind (laughs) for next week. Uh, (laughs) Well, thanks, guys. We will talk to you next week here at the Cloud Pod. Good night. Bye, everybody. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.